You're listening to In The Bunker, a podcast that explores the biggest challenges in starting and running a business. My name is Joshua Maddox, and I'm an entrepreneur and business owner myself. I'm sitting down with business owners to talk about the challenges they face, the lessons they've learned, and how we can all grow from it. Welcome back to In The Bunker. Every business owner has faced challenges and we love to share those stories. Today, we have Francis Harder in the bunker with us. Francis was, has been faced with the challenge of working with different cultures in business. If you've ever worked across cultures or with another business in another country, you've probably experienced cultural differences. These are always exciting, but can be challenging in business. She has over 30 plus years experience in fashion and fashion consulting, there's so much to unpack here, and I'm super excited to jump in. Let's welcome Francis. Thank you, Joshua. As we jump in, let's get your sort of background. Who are you? How'd you get here? What do you do in business? Well, it probably take too long to really tell you the whole thing, but basically I'm from the UK where I studied fashion design at an art college and went into designing and also was lucky enough to be invited back to teach at the university I graduated from. So I've always had dual teaching and designing and using my, you know, design eye as well and realized that design is not enough unless you don't, unless you understand the business side. So I geared myself when I was teaching to starting a class on the business side of the fashion industry, how to start your own business. And that led me to write my book. And it also led me to start my fashion business incorporated at the FBI in 1999. And we were in business and we would help new startup companies as a nonprofit. And that was another exciting experience for me running a nonprofit, meeting people who were willing to give a lot. And we had an amazing 20 years and met some incredible people and opened up doors for me. And honestly, one of the biggest, probably the biggest pluses that I pass on to many students and younger people is you got to network. Networking is key to moving on to the next door that opens. And so the more networking you can do, the better. So when I started the FBI, I was invited to speak at different trade shows. From that, the people in the audiences like Magic International, it's huge. It's the biggest trade show for apparel. And so in the audience, you don't know who's going to be there, but there were people who invited me to go to Germany to find out what the Germans are doing for sustainability, invited to France to see what the French were doing to do with protecting their brands, invited to Australia to tour Australia, talking about how to start the, your own business and enter the American market. I was invited by China a few times. I've been over there to, first of all, as a tour from Shanghai, Beijing and other places to understand the industries over there. And then I've been invited back a few times. And then of course, the United Nations, they contacted me and I'm working. I've, my first one was in Peru, working with the making, oh, they were doing their own products. And it was really an interesting, I, I really enjoyed that. In Peru, the people were fantastic. And after Peru, I went to into Nepal, helping them with their cashmere products. And the latest one is two contracts with Egypt. And one of the things also that's come out of this is I've been recognized as an expert in the industry. So I do quite a lot of expert witness work and we've had some very interesting cases with that. So it's quite a challenge and quite interesting. As I always say, I used to do a lot of sports, Joshua, and even now when I'm driving home, I go, did we win this one or did we lose this one? Sometimes it's just, sometimes you lose and you have to move on. And if you win, that's good. And maybe you go on to the next game. You try to take it philosophically. 
rather than getting too upset. That's really good. On the win-lose aspect, the one thing for me is even if a business deal doesn't work out or whatever it is, there's still elements, even if you lose that, there's still elements that you can take home as nuggets that you can learn from. So although you may have not got that project or whatever that loss looked like, there's still elements to learn from. And I encourage business owners all the time to to still look at what can you learn from that situation. So a little bit of world travel, just a tiny, but some incredible stuff working with different countries, different, all different types of companies that are looking to enter the U.S. market. And I imagine that that has never been faced with any type of challenge, whether that's language barrier or just time zone differences. There's so many elements there. And I know before we hit record, I know one of the things that you and I were discussing was cultural differences and cultural expectations a little bit. What what does that look like? Obviously, um, we want to be respectful of cultures and different cultures work differently. I know America is very big on focusing on work and your work is what defines you. Where other countries... You're defined by your family and your hobbies more. Your work just happens to be how you make a living. And I think that's something that culturally different countries value differently. So not necessarily something that we're looking to disrespect any culture specifically, but talk about the differences and the expectations there. Yes, it's not, it's observations that you learn really. And it's not a negative. It's just that dealing with these different cultures is a learning experience. It has been for me, and I think it probably would be the same for you. And when people are like dealing with, say, the Egyptians, and you talk to somebody who's in the industry, and you pass on your experience, and they'll say exactly what experience I've had, they have also had the same experience. And we, you and I were talking about before experience, maybe working with the Chinese has been exactly your experience was like ditto of mine. And so it's very interesting to work with different cultures. And I lived in Germany for six years, so I got to, and I ended up marrying one. So I learned the German culture. You think that the Europeans would be similar, but they're not. So living in Germany, I, I, you know, I loved it dearly and, but there were definite cultural differences. So working with the cultural differences is interesting, challenging, and you hope that are they like, particularly now working with the United Nations with Egypt. I was hired as a consultant to assist them to understand how to enter the American market. What do they need to do? How do they prepare? Everything from the websites. This is who you are up front with a website. So what is the first person going to do when they're looking at your company? They're going to go to your website. So when you're dealing with, say, Egypt, it's very male-dominated. And so you open up the website. You've got a big, strong building up there, right? What you scroll down, there's a row of men in suits and a tie. And so you say, what are they selling here? They're selling women's clothing. Isn't that interesting? You know, I would say to them, you've got to change this website. People need to know, identify immediately what it is you're doing. And you need to change that out regularly so they want to go back. But these are the things. And the same thing in Nepal. That was rather a male working with the Kashmir producers. And they have a big issue because the West changed Pashmina is the highest quality cashmere you can get. And so it got, it got messed up by the Americans or the West. And suddenly, I don't years ago, you're probably too young, but it was like 20 years ago, they were selling pashminas on the corner and they were really rayon for $10 and it's destroyed their brand. So they have, we had to rebrand pashmina cashmere. And one of the 
scientists came up with planting DNA in the fibers of the goat. And so that when it was spun and then knitted or woven into something, that DNA was there all the way through the washing. So it was an amazing way of, this is pure Pashmina Kashmir. Essentially, more or less like a serial number on a car, a VIN number on a car. Exactly. Wow. Yeah, that was pretty neat. And then with the Peru, the Peruvians, they were using a lot of sustainability. I was very impressed with that. I'm not sure if you've been there. We went to Lima and then Arapica. Fantastic. The people were absolutely beautiful. I want to go back. And then went up to Lake Titicaca, which is like 14,000 square, 20, sorry, 14,000 feet high, giving a lecture to a group of women, men who were doing their alpaca. And so they were sitting there with translators on. I'm giving a lecture and I'm just looking around and going, I, it, to me, it was like, I'm on 14,000 feet high. I'm from bloody Manchester. How did I get here? So that was an out of body experience, but uh, a great experience all the same. That's crazy. I know we were discussing the aspect of sort of the American lifestyle, the American work ethic and looking at other countries. I know my brother spent some time in Jordan on a trip there and on the drive from the airport to where they were staying, his friend's girlfriend or fiance or whoever it was, he said he felt like he was interrogated. He's like, I first time I've ever met this person. And she's like, oh, so like, you know, your family, blah, 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 like wanted nothing to do with, oh, what do you do for a job? Didn't care about that. But like, all these different details. They'd go sit in a coffee shop and some guy walks up and sits down, you know, at their table and they just start chatting and an hour and a half goes by and the guy gets up and leaves. And my brother's, oh, do you guys know him from, you know, here? Do you know him from there? Do you know him from work? And they're like, no, we've never met the guy before. And it's, they had this in-depth hour and a half long conversation, but that's how the culture in Jordan and other countries, it, that's how the culture is, where in the U.S. we're, I think part of it is we're short, uh, we're guarded a little bit, and there's also this status symbol uh, a little bit as well. And it's hard for businesses who maybe don't understand that, don't experience that, to transition to understanding what the American culture is when they're entering the market here in the U.S. I know I had a professor who in college, he said that he had traveled and he taught at a few other schools and around the world. And he said there was one college he showed up to and his class starts at 2 p.m. So he showed up there at 1.45 to set up and two o'clock comes around, 2.15, 2.30, and the first student walks in the door. He's, you are a half hour late. And they're like, oh, yeah, no, you have two classes a day here. You have a morning class and an afternoon class. And typically the afternoon class starts anywhere from a half hour to an hour after what it says on the schedule. Where was this? It was an, I cannot remember what country it was, but it was another country. And he was just like, what on earth? <laughs> and... They're like, that's just how the culture is here. And it's anything is taken with a grain of salt when it comes to time. Time is a rough suggestion if it starts at two, which is it's just weird. It's yeah. crazy. We used to lock the door when I was teaching you. Oh, which is if you were late 10 minutes, we'd lock the door. Yeah. Or we were fit up as well. If you were late, you had 
three late, three tardies equals actually a fail. You, yeah. Years ago when I was teaching that, you had three lates, you got failed. Very strict on time in America. I agree. And yeah. I think. I think England's the same, or Europe as well. Well, and I look at that from an employer's perspective. Employers in the U.S., if you had an employee showing up anywhere from 15 minutes to an hour late on a regular basis, like... You'd fired. Yeah. <laughs> and so someone who maybe is coming from a different culture, like understanding that is a huge element. Understanding how important, you know, it is to be on time, to be a part of that um, is it's, it's a learning curve. Like, yeah, I think one of the, one, another example is, I say, working with Italy, right? Love Italy, love the food, love the people, love going there, but they never ship on time. So, you know, we're, we always say, if you're buying from Italy, allow yourself a, a window of time because they're always shipped late. And so, which in this industry is really frustrating. And I remember talking to an Italian friend of mine, I'm saying, the Americans, as I said to you earlier on, what you do in the American business is, you do what you say you're going to do. One sentence, that's all it is. And if you don't, you need to be transparent and let people, some, obviously things happen. So maybe the silk from Italy couldn't get through to you in time because they had an issue. You're going to let them know. And I was talking to this Orlando and he said, yeah, but when will we always ship late? And it's okay, we do know you ship late. And we, you know, but then they're losing huge amounts of business by just con constantly not performing on time because as you're in America, if you're going to ship in this window, you have to get it in then. Otherwise you're going to cancel orders. Well, and especially with the, the element and the rise of just-in-time delivery, I look at how many right now is a great example. We're, we're at the end of 2020 and our port in Los Angeles has 50 plus ships sitting waiting. We're backed up. And stores are late on deliveries. And so just-in-time delivery is a great concept when every piece of the puzzle works flawlessly. But heaven forbid, you get a backup of a port, you get weather that causes issues, you get a shipping delay for whatever reason that is. And sometimes that doesn't need to be some catastrophic 30-day delay. Sometimes that can be 72 hours. That 72-hour delay can be a huge difference in whether a product is going to get sold at the right time or not. You drop Christmas decor on, you know, December 30th, and now it's on the clearance rack. I know. With I lived near the port, and I saw it yesterday. There were 80, 80 container boats out waiting to get in. And the traffic just getting in and out, it was just when there were trucks from Maine, trucks from Tennessee, trucks with, you see them on the road, trying to get on the road and get out. And this is, a, this is an interesting topic because what everybody in our industry and probably other industries too, is that we're looking for domestic manufacturing. We're trying to bring it back, not only for the sustainable access, because it's going to be sustainable. You're saving all that fuel, but you're also, as you say, on demand, we're looking for on demand fast, or whether you go near shoring, which is Mexico and south of the border where truck the goods in. So there is a huge change, but unfortunately, this is something that the U.S. needs to address, which Biden is with the infrastructure money, is that we've not invested in our infrastructure. So you go to your one time, the fashion industry in, in LA was the largest industry within, with the clothing industry within America. 
very vibrant, huge. You've got old buildings downtown, Joshua, where you can't even get a truck down the alley in the back. Old elevators, wooden floors that creak, you can see the floors below. We have to, if we want to bring domestic manufacturing back in all fields, we have to invest in, in our own infrastructure. Think yeah. about, you can't even get a train to, from here to Vegas. You could get fast trains from London to Paris. Why can't we get more efficient? I know we're criticizing our foreign partners, but in, in a way, a lot of our issues need to be addressed domestically. We need to start investing in our own infrastructure. One, it's funny to me how we talk about, oh, XYZ culture is a little bit more laxed and they're a little bit more flexible on time frames. But that's the culture that figured out public transportation. They figured out infrastructure. They figured out all this stuff. And then we're over here saying deadlines, but we can't figure it out. I live in an area where every time the wind blows the wrong direction, more than 30 miles an hour, they shut my power off. I got a notice last night from Edison saying, happy Thanksgiving, we might shut your power off type thing. It's crazy. And so this is the over, these are the overland power lines. Nobody in Europe has overland power lines. They're all underground. Yeah. We haven't got to that. So we're, you're threatened by fires constantly. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Yeah, it is. And it's one of those elements where we'll figure it out eventually. We'll get there. And I think the element that you're talking about, the nearshore or about bringing manufacturing back to the U.S., I think that's very interesting. And I think I also look at it from that there's a company that's developing what they're calling micro farms. And so they're using shipping containers. They're using a, a 40 foot shipping container and they're putting grow lights in it and they can grow arugula and lettuce and spinach and radishes and all this stuff. Radishes need eight inches to grow. That's it. And then they can have a grow light. If you put them out in the middle of a farm, all they're using is eight inches of space. But if you stack them vertically inside of a shipping container, a 40 foot shipping container can be the equivalent of a one acre farm. And so well, they got lights. How can they? Yeah. Yep. So they put grow lights and stuff in oh, them and stuff, basically the same with the marijuana farms that are using indoors. And so there's restaurants now that have realized that it's actually not necessarily cheaper, but more economical from an aspect of not having to go figure out where they're getting, you know, the lettuce from today, they can actually drop a 40 foot shipping container in their parking lot and then grow all their own produce out their back door. And so they need, so literally the, the salad that's sitting on your plate at dinner was picked two hours ago, <laughs> mm. which great. is so much fresher. It's not having to travel, you know, days, sprayed trucks, and sprayed, sprayed. all that mess. And there's elements like that with not only consumable products in, in food industry, but there's also fashion. There's so much elements with that. If you're not trucking it halfway across the world, like you said, it's a lot less fuel and stuff that's used. I know there's a lot of ground that we've covered with today's conversation. And what would be your advice to someone who is facing a similar challenge of really working with different cultures in business? I'd say do a little research um, and also do test orders with people and see how it works. But there again, if you tried to come to some agreement with an offshore company, I, of course, we, the Americans are very, we're all, we have pieces of paper with contracts and you have to sign this. And 
I was working actually years ago, well, there's another, I had a, a Japanese company contact me when I was teaching to ask if I'd do a line of clothing for their Japanese brand. And so I was designing under my name for them living here. I thought we need a contract. So I get my contract together and I gave it to the Japanese contacts I was working with. And he read through it and looked at it and nodded and he just shook my hand. He never signed it, but honestly, Joshua, I never had a problem. They paid me every month on a retainer, never any issue. And when the yen went down the toilet, things crumbled a little bit, but working with them was just such smooth sailing, no issues at all. Now, which talking about working with say China, they, I've been talking to a university over there for the last two years, they want to use my book and me to teach it in modules. And I've come up with a plan. I've shown the plan. I've, you know, was worried. Everybody goes, oh, you got to protect your business. And so your IP. So I spent nearly $10,000 on registering it in China and getting it all legal. So nobody can knock it off. And this conversations will come every three months. I get another email and I've just come to the point where I, I just can't do anymore. This I've lost interest because it seems to be, I'm spinning wheels and it's not going anywhere. So whether anything will come of it, I don't know, but Joshua, you've had some experiences too, right? Yeah, we have. We had our talk, you and I were talking about before, there was a company who approached us for a fairly high-end product in China and it was a similar element. It was handfuls of conversations. And I, I think sometimes, and this isn't necessarily even a culture thing, I think there's sometimes where businesses come up with amazing ideas and they can see the, the, the end outcome. They can see that this product makes them $20 million a year, but they realize that getting from point A to point Z is going to take a lot of work and they are almost looking for someone to come in and take on a little bit more of that. And that's fine if they're providing maybe a revenue share, but sometimes just relying on a contractor to, to come in and just take over everything is a little hard. Especially if you don't have any money coming in from it. No. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing you mentioned with contracts across different countries, contracts are great, but the biggest thing you want to think about is what is the cost to enforce said contract? If you have a contract with a company overseas in another country, you need an attorney who understands that country's laws and who can navigate the legal system both here and there. And if your contract value is less than what it's gonna to cost to have your attorney fly there and spend a week or so, then you, there's no real, almost not even a reason to have a contract other than just a here's the understanding, sort of a letter of understanding more just to and make sure everybody's on the same page. This is the expectations. And that's really where I would say you want to, you want to think about it. Yeah. One, one thing I have found though, that is within American system is the U.S. trade of commerce. They have some really great services to help any American company who's thinking of going internationally. I, I was part of the, um, an international group from the, for the U.S. trade of commerce. And now I'm connected to them. I know that they have some really good, anybody thinking about going abroad, either to manufacture or to sell, definitely get in touch with the U.S. Trade and Commerce. They have some really good help. And they, of course, they know who to contact in these particular countries who can help you. In each country, the American embassy is there and they can certainly 
give you some, at least some advice as to how to handle it. Yeah, there's a lot of different resources out there, whether it's something like U.S. Trade and Commerce or the SBA has some great resources. And, you know, there's maybe it's there may be a paid resource through the SBA, but they may be able to point you in the right direction. And oh, yeah. in reality, paying someone who has gone through this a hundred times before for an hour of their time to say, hey, what are the big hiccups and issues that I can expect? Elements like you just talked about with, oh, if you deal with this culture or this country, they typically are always late on shipping. And so great, if we're expecting it to be here on February 1st, then maybe we should make sure we tell them two weeks earlier. Exactly. And yeah. And just pad the time accordingly. And I'll always build in those little extra margins as needed. And I know so many businesses saw that. There's a company that I've been following that makes a makes a product and they had finally gotten all their manufacturing stuff lined up right before COVID hit. And then COVID hit and now they've gone back to the manufacturer and the manufacturers said, there's no way we can make your product for what we quoted you before. It's going to be 30% more. And so they have all these pre-orders for product that now they're going to be losing money on. And so they're like, we either need to cancel the pre-orders or sorry, guys, we got to charge you extra. And so they're like, that's your option. And it's hard. There's always unexpected elements. And as business owners, the biggest thing that you can do is connect with other business owners and strategize, seek counseling or seek someone who maybe has been there before or been a step ahead of you and learn from others. That's what you said about with the SBA. I know when I was teaching, when we had the Fashion Business Incorporated, we had lots of classes and we did a lot of short-term certified training. And we had consultants who were also consultants for the SBA. So as you say, you can get a lot of free information from SBA and you can hire a consultant who, you know, not for a lot, who's from the industry to help you. So even if it's not assisting you with your business plan and things like that, so you can get a lot of good help from them. Kudos to them. They really are good. Yeah. There's a lot of good stuff there. Awesome. Is there any sort of nuggets of advice to leave us with as we wrap up our time? I, only what I always say to students is it's all about networking. Really, my journey has been about how I got here, going to Germany, how I got here and what I've done here. It's been about just different doors opening and get out there, work hard and doors will work open for you. If you're starting your own business, particularly in the apparel industry, it's a good time to start now surprisingly enough, because as you've talked about on demand, you can do smaller quantities. The big companies are looking for thousands of orders, thousands of units. The other sad issue is uh, I know a factory downtown who can't find sewers. And it's the same, no one can find workers in the restaurants. So he can't find sewers. And we're talking quite a lot of talk about retraining, certifying, even if it's refugees coming in, give them a short-term training and get them to sew a bit, sewers, and then give them an upward mobility. I don't think you need to go to a two-year, four-year college. You can learn on the job a little bit like apprenticeship. So there's a lot of good changes, and I think it's, it's a good time to start a business. I like the aspect of networking all open doors. I totally agree. Networking is always a great way to connect with businesses and, and business owners and other people in your industry. Yeah, and being creative while hiring. That's a whole nother topic in itself, but creativity right now is a huge thing. Creativity in business is always a huge thing. I appreciate uh, you coming on and your time today. We will have in the show notes, we'll have your LinkedIn, your Twitter, your Amazon author page, your website, fashionforprofit.com, uh, and then the business information, 
Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, all that stuff along with your bio. That's like eight or nine links in total. But where is the number one spot? If someone wants to reach out and connect with you, what's the number one spot for them to do that? LinkedIn's pretty good. I have a good connection on LinkedIn. So if anybody wants to connect with me, they can go to LinkedIn. It's probably the best or through my website, either way. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you, Joshua, for giving me the opportunity. Appreciate you having you on the show today. Good to have you. Thank you. Take care. See you again. Thanks for listening to this episode of In The Bunker. As always, we can be found on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at In The Bunker Podcast. Be sure to share this episode and what you're going to apply from it and how that can affect your business. Make sure to tag us in that post so we can highlight your journey as well. But before you go, I have a quick personal ask. Each episode of In the Bunker takes a lot of work to put together from finding the guest, shooting, editing, all of that. And where I really could use your help is twofold. First, if you're listening to this on Apple Podcast or another podcast platform that can let you leave a five-star review or a text-based review, I would truly and greatly appreciate that. It really helps with the algorithm and allowing other listeners to find the show. The next thing that I really need help on is sharing this with friends, family, business owners, people that you think need to hear this content. I appreciate you listening to this episode and looking forward to next week. Take care.